You know, one of the things that we say a lot around here, and we're going to say even more of in the days ahead, in fact, we're going to have it plastered on the wall out here, so you'll see it um, in the days ahead, is a phrase that we like to say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We want everything that we do here at Eagles Landing to be all about Him. And the reason I say that is because next week we do have a special guest, and there's going to be people who come merely because they follow football, okay? Uh, some of you don't care anything about football, and that's fine. But what I want you to hear is we're not going to make it about football. We're going to make next week all about Jesus. Um, the whole goal of next week is to put the gospel on display, live to make him known uh, to a people group that right now we don't have access to. Um, you're going to hear more about family and faith than you are about football. So come ready to hear more about those things than you do uh, about any specific sport. I think you're going to be blessed by David Pollock being with us, but I just wanted to make sure I said that because I actually left a couple weeks ago thinking, man, I don't ever want to say Georgia more than I say Jesus, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I just want to make sure that we as a church make, uh, kind of keep our, ourselves in line with that. But you know, it's hard to believe we're already at the end of the summer. I feel like the older I get, the quicker summer goes by. Uh, I felt like summer just started. In fact, I wish summer just started uh, so we could do it all over again. But today is the last Sunday of the summer, and we've spent this entire summer in a series that we've called The Best Summer Yet. And one of the things that we've talked about throughout this series is what it looks like to develop uh, really healthy rhythms in our lives uh, so that we can have a more fervent walk with God. Uh, and the very first day of the summer, Sunday of the summer, we talked about that. What does it look like to develop a healthy rhythm of walking with God? And then we talked about what it looks like to develop a healthy rhythm of praise. What it looks like to develop a healthy rhythm of prayer. What it looks like to worship God with an undivided heart. And then we've all brought in church planters that spoke on various topics. But we're going to conclude our time together today talking about what I believe is probably the most important, if not the most critical, sermon of the entire summer. And I'm going to say something that I feel like the Lord laid on my heart that might be a bit bold or audacious to you. Uh, I believe this is going to be the most critical, if not the most important, sermon I've preached in the three years that I've been here at Eagles Landing. Um, the reason I say that is because I've talked about this text before. So if you go in your Bible to 1 John, you're going to see that we've been in this text before. But this is a text that can't escape me. The Lord keeps bringing me back to, and I believe that he's altered my approach to the text just a little bit, to be faithful to the text, but altered it just a little bit so that he could speak, speak specifically to our people, to our church. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn uh, to the book of 1 John. It's in the very back of your Bible, small book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 this morning. And this is how I want to get started, and I hope that you'll hear this phrase, and then you'll know where we're headed today, okay? Here's the phrase. There is nothing more dangerous to our spiritual vitality than spiritual apathy. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. There is nothing more dangerous to your spiritual life, to your spiritual vitality, than becoming spiritually apathetic. There is nothing more dangerous to our church's spiritual vitality than spiritual apathy. This past week, my family and I, we were able to enjoy a week at the beach. 
much like Matt and his family, and where we went to the Gulf, uh, there were red flags on about three of the five or six days that we were there. And those red flags uh, signify that the riptide in the water is pretty strong. Now, you can swim, but you're swimming in dangerous waters. There's riptides that are present. And honestly, I didn't, I didn't know what a riptide looked like. I didn't know if you could see it from the shore or if you had to be up top to see it. I didn't know what it looked like. So I was asking questions about riptides. We kind of pulled out our phones and studied what a riptide is. And then after knowing what it is and what it looks like, my, my daughter and I, we got in the water and we actually got in the riptide. And I know she panicked a little bit, but as we were in that riptide, I said, just got us from sideways. That's what Google said. And Google's always right. It's the Bible, right? So let's just do what it says and let's swim this way. And, and we were fine. But here's the thing. Spiritual apathy is a lot like a riptide. If you're not careful, it's easy to get yourself into. It's exceedingly difficult to get yourself out of. And if you don't navigate through it cautiously, it could lead to your spiritual death. And that's where we're headed this morning. As we're headed to a place where I want to ask you up front, are you in a spiritual riptide? Like, is your life in a place of spiritual apathy that you've found yourself into, you've drifted into, you're trying to get out of, you just can't get out of it? And if you're not careful, you'll be plummeting to your spiritual death. The answer to the question that we need to put on the table today is, what is spiritual apathy? Some of us are wondering, if we're going to talk about that, we actually need to define what it is. Really, spiritual apathy is when we in our lives lack spiritual zeal. You remember when you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? When the light bulb went off and, and the Lord called you to himself, and all of a sudden the scales of your eyes were removed, and you could see who Jesus is, and, and you knew what Jesus did for your sin, and you knew that the only appropriate response to who he is and what he's done is to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, putting him, reigning him as supreme in all of your life, making him your Lord. You remember that day when you made that decision to follow him for the very first time? And what it felt like, your, your heart was on fire. You, you hungered for the word of God. You wanted to be in it. You wanted to tell your family and your friends about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you in your place at the cross. And quite frankly, if you go back to that day and time when you surrendered your life to Jesus, you might remember being a nuisance, a, a bit of a, an annoyance to somebody because you couldn't get over Jesus and that's all you talked about. And somewhere along the way of your spiritual journey, you have drifted into a riptide. And quite frankly, you've become lazy to spiritual things. You didn't just wake up one day and say, today I'm going to refuse to do a quiet time. I'm going to refuse to spend time with Jesus. In fact, I have no appetite, no desire for the things of God. I'm going to turn it off. You, do, you won't do that. You just drift into that direction. And before you know it, you're stuck in this place where you have no clue how to get out of it. And for some of you this morning, that is exactly where you're at. It's exactly where you're at. If it's not where you are, you know someone who is there. But I don't want you to be thinking about that person more than you're thinking about yourself today. I really want you to put yourself up against the Word of God and ask yourself, am I in a place of spiritual apathy this morning? Do I lack spiritual zeal in my life? Have I become lazy towards the things of God? Have I approached the things of God in a form or fashion that's a bit lethargic? You know, the word apathy, by mere definition, if not by translation, it actually means without feeling. 
where you walk through this life spiritually without any feeling towards the things of God. There's no excitement, there's no enthusiasm about the things of the Lord. It's a very easy place to get into. It's a very difficult place to get out of. And if we're not careful, it will lead us to our own spiritual deaths. For the sake of time, what I want to do this morning is I want to define what we're going to talk about when we say spiritual apathy this morning so that we all know we're on the same page where we're going. Spiritual apathy is this. Spiritual apathy is growing numb towards Jesus and his church. Okay, that's what we're talking about this morning. Spiritual apathy is growing numb towards Jesus, towards his church, and might I add, towards the mission of God. It's when we become lazy or lethargic towards those things. You know, one thing that we have to understand about, about the God of the universe is God created you with emotions. Emotions aren't bad. Feelings aren't necessarily a bad thing, but when those emotions or those feelings are directed to anyone or anything other than God himself, that's when they become bad. So we have emotions. You, you should feel things. My question to you today is, are those emotions on fire for God? Do you, do you experience those emotions, those feelings uh, um, towards God in a way that, that, that's like a fire inside of your, your bones that, that you have to let out? Or has it become more numb to you? You know, since the year 2020, for whatever reason, it could have been COVID, it could have been the cultural war that we're all up against, whatever it was, year 2020 is one we wish we could all bury, right? Nobody likes to revisit it. But since the year 2020, spiritual apathy is at an all-time high. And in many ways, this burdens my heart because I see people who are walking in spiritual apathy, and I'm the type of person that if it's broke, I want to fix it. Maybe you're like that too. You want to do whatever you can to fix the issue. But on the same token, the, the opposite side of the same coin, coin, spiritual apathy might be a very good thing. Because at the heart of the issue, we've realized that some people who we thought were believers, or maybe they thought they were believers, they might not be believers at all. And maybe for the first time we're seeing that, that the year 2020 exposed not just who, who, who are now spiritual apathetic, but also might, who have no spiritual vitality at all. But you know, the church attendance was disrupted in 2020. That led to spiritual apathy. Isolation became the norm in 2020. That leads to spiritual apathy. You are created for community, not to exist in isolation. So when you're not there amongst a group of people who are going to hold you accountable, push you towards godliness, and, and encourage you and edify you, that can lead to spiritual apathy. Accountability became an afterthought. We don't need people, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll just kind of live our lives that way. Don't hold me accountable, I won't hold you accountable. You don't speak into my life, I won't speak into yours. And when, as long as you're not hurting me and I'm not hurting you, we should all be good. We should all be fun. That, that leads to spiritual apathy. Critical spirit started to consume the life of the Christian. Well, my pastor didn't say enough about COVID, or he said too little about COVID, and he didn't agree with this, and he didn't agree with that. He didn't say, you follow me. So we began, we, we created this critical spirit. Or the cultural war, he said too much about that. He didn't say nothing at all. And all of a sudden, we got this critical spirit that creeps up, and it's hard to shake off. We're in the riptide. We got ourselves in there, and it's difficult to get ourselves out of. And in the past two years, for many people, they have been literally on a journey to their own spiritual deaths. But let's take note this morning. Apathy is not ignorance. Apathy is not ignorance. 
for many people that call themselves genuine followers of Jesus Christ, they know what to do. They're just choosing not to do it. It's not ignorance. It's I know that I should be in church faithfully. I just have other priorities that are more important to me than the body of Christ. I know I should be serving the body. I just don't have the time, the energy, the effort because I do that all day, Monday through Friday. I don't have another day to serve somewhere else. I know that I should be giving faithfully, but there's all these other things that are competing for where, I'm, where my generosity should flow, so I've chosen to do that. You, you follow me, and all of a sudden, before you know it, we think apathy is ignorance when it's actually not. The, the basic, basics of the Christian life are that we read the word, we pray, we sing, we serve, those types of things. And all of a sudden, they've taken a back seat to what we've put in the front seat. So in spite of knowing what to do, numbness has prevailed. A critical spirit abounds. And like I said, it's much like being stuck in a riptide without any way out. Listen to this statement. Spiritual apathy begins with spiritual blindness, but it ends with spiritual death. Spiritual apathy begins with spiritual blindedness. Pay attention to what that means. Every individual in this room, myself included, we have blind spots. There's a book called Blind Spots. It's a great resource to read. It'll really help you discover what your blind spots are. We have blind spots. But for most of us, we can't address them because we don't see them. That's why we need other people to speak into our lives. Hey, I see this blind spot in you. You might not even know you're doing this or not doing this, but I'm going to speak into your life so that you can look more and more like Christ. So we all have these spiritual blind spots. Spiritual apathy, it begins there, but it ends in death. That's why we need to address the issue. See, apathy is something that people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, have wrestled with. I mean, think about the prophet Hosea. You remember his story. He led the, you, you know, the, the Israelites, they, they left Egyptian slavery. They go across the Red Sea. They come into Canaan. They conquer Canaan. And they go into this land that's filled with milk and honey. And God gave to them in abundance. They had watched God work in a, a powerful, powerful way the people of God did. And what was Hosea's task in Hosea chapter 13, verse 6? What, what does he say there? He goes to the people of God and he says to the people of God, you are living in a place of plenty, but you have used that plenty to pamper your own wants and desires. You have started to indulge in your own flesh. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 13, thus you have forgotten God. Do you know how, much, how applicable that is today to today? We, land, we, we live in a land of prosperity as Americans. We do. A, a land of abundance. And if we take our eyes off the blesser and start focusing on the blessing, we have forgotten God. The same thing that Hosea was rebuking them for doing, we do ourselves. We start focusing on the creation rather than the creator himself. This is the same thing that Haggai had to deal with. Haggai's whole goal and purpose in ministry was to focus on awakening a people who had sunk deep into spiritual apathy. The brother of Jesus, James, what did he do? He says, you know what to do. You're just not doing it, and that's called sin. It's apathy. You've grown numb to the things of God. 
And before we dive into the text this morning, I want to give you seven warning signs of apathy, okay? This will help you determine if you're there. It'll help you determine if you're there. Seven warning signs. First, there's a decline in church attendance. There's a decline in church attendance. Maybe we take it a step further, as I did, a decline in group attendance. Because here's why. At the end of the day, the best form of discipleship that you're going to get here at Eagles Landing, and really most churches, is in a life group. Where you're doing life with people, not listening to another lecture and leaving. Like, that's not what it's designed to do. It's, it's designed to apply the truths of the Bible to your heart and hold each other accountable to start walking in the manners of the truth of the gospel. You, you live life with the people in your life group. And you do life with them. And through the regular rhythms of life, you can see if you're walking with God or not. Decline in church attendance or even a group life. Second, lack of concern for souls in your community. Have, have, you, have you picked up on that in your own individual life? Do you feel a lack of concern for souls in your community? Let me give you an example of how this works. Again, the opposite side of the same coin. Are you becoming more like frustrated with people in your community? Man, the way they drive, there's too many cars, the houses don't look as good, or whatever the case may be. If you develop a critical spirit towards your own community, then you're going to naturally grow in lack of care for them. We need to love where we live. And when you love where you live, you have an innate ability to start reaching that particular place. What about a lack of enthusiastic participation in singing, serving, and worship? I didn't say a lack of enthusiastic speculation or spectatorship or whatever you want to call it, right? I, I, I'm not talking about being a spectator. I'm talking about participating in worship. Like, do you have an enthusiastic participation in singing and serving and worship? Four, indifference to the needs of others. You just don't care what people are walking through and why they're walking through it. In fact, for the most part, it's their own sins that have led them to that. Man, that is a sign that your heart might be spiritually apathetic. Number five, no pastoral encouragement. Do you know that that's biblical? That you have pastors at your church that they should be encouraging you, you should be encouraging them? Nowhere in Scripture does it say, hey, become a critic of them and speak to all your friends about how they're not doing the things that you wish they would do. It, it doesn't tell us to do that in Scripture. In fact, it says just the opposite. Is that present in your life? Do you find room for that? When you pick up the phone and you talk to your bestie, are y'all talking about things that edify and encourage the life of the church? Or you think, are you talking about things that make you feel better about you, but ultimately you're putting someone else down? Number six, declining concern for mission. You know what? God's sovereign. He's going to save who he wants to save. He doesn't necessarily need me to do it. That is polar opposite of who God is. He wants to use you to take and advance the gospel to others. Number seven, failure to invest in the next generation. And whatever capacity that is. Here's what I've learned as I went through those seven by myself. And I kind of use it as a litmus test for me. Here's what I've learned. I learned there's some that I try to justify and rationalize. Well, the reason I don't do that is because I have to do all of this. But you know what? At the end of the day, if I really want to walk with God, I'm going to call my excuses exactly what they are. They're excuses. And I'm going to call my sin exactly what it is. It's sin. If I really want to walk with God, I'm going to take that seriously. And I'm going to make changes, adjustments in my life so that I can look more and more like him. With that in mind, 
We're going to read 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And we're going to fly through this quickly today. It says this in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now on the surface of this text, it's easy to think that John is talking to a group of unregenerate, unbaptized, lost people. But he's not. In fact, the audience here is just the opposite. John is writing to brothers and sisters in the faith. He's providing them with proof of their own salvation. There are people in John's context who are walking around saying, I'm a follower of Christ. And their validation for this, the way that they're saying it is like this, I am walking in the light. And John comes to them and says, actually, you're not walking in the light. You're actually walking in the darkness. Can you imagine being one of the people that John said that to? That would be like me coming to you and having a conversation with you and asking you, are you a child of God? Has there ever been a time that you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus and you said, oh, absolutely, Trey. And I look back and say, absolutely not. You haven't. You walk in darkness. You would think either I'm really crazy or I'm really bold, right? But it would take a lot of courage and boldness for me to actually say that to you, by the way. And that's essentially what John is doing. So if I'm going to make that accusation against you, and John's going to make that accusation against them, then he better have solid evidence to back up that accusation. So what does John say is evidence to make this judgment against them? This is what John says. He says, I know you aren't walking in light because there's not a steady flow of confession and repentance in your life. You hear that? The reason we know that you're not walking in the light of the gospel is because there's not a steady flow of confession and repentance in your lives. According to John, a distinguishing mark of a true believer is that confession and, re and repentance are present in their lives. That this isn't an afterthought. It's something that we see as a rhythm in their lives. Uh, in fact, true believers are habitual confessors. That's all they are. The heart of the gospel is that confession of sin leads to complete forgiveness. And this shows that the gospel is taking root in your heart because you're constantly confessing sins. So the question today is simple. How do we, sir, ma'am, how do you avoid apathy? That's what we're going to talk about. How do we avoid apathy? First, in order to avoid apathy, we must develop an honest assessment of self. We must develop an honest assessment of self. Look at verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I love what John is doing here. John is establishing some common ground. He's not saying you. He's actually saying we. He, he says us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's making himself a part of them. We are all Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of the same family. And this is as much true of you as it is of me. That's what John is saying. But I love it if you dig to the depths of this. This is what John is really saying. He's saying the biggest liar to you is who? It's you. We get so ticked off when someone lies to us. In fact, we, we literally boycott people and cast them out of our lives and cut them off because they lied to us. But we lie to ourselves on the daily. 
Like every single day we are lying and deceiving our own individual selves to believe something that simply isn't true about us. And yet we have more grace for us than we do for others. The antithesis of the gospel is just the opposite of that. The Bible says we say we have no sin. And when we say that we deceive ourselves, we aren't telling ourselves the truth. Now listen, church, when you become a child of God, we need to understand that sin doesn't just vanish. Okay? It no longer reigns in your life, but it doesn't just vanish. In, in other words, it doesn't occupy the throne of your life anymore. You're, not, you're now more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. He's dealt with the sin that you've committed past, present, and even future, but that doesn't mean that sin vanishes. In fact, it does just the opposite. When you become a follower of Christ, all of hell is doing everything that they can to cause you to, to, to impede your progress of advancing the gospel. Satan came for what? To steal, to kill, to destroy. It doesn't say that he comes to, to cuddle up with you. It doesn't say that he comes to be your friend. It doesn't say that he comes so that you can invite him to, you know, into your house and, and recline with him. No, he came to steal. He came to kill and he came to destroy. Sin has no respect for persons. Sin doesn't say, you know what, that person's a child of God, I best leave them alone. No, he actually goes after you because he knows that you are going to do damage to his kingdom. If you talk about Jesus and you live for Jesus and you look like Jesus and you love like Jesus and all of a sudden you belong to Jesus, he knows that that's going to hurt him. So he starts war against you. When you become a child of God, sin is provoked and angered and fights to be king of the hill in your own individual life. But the reality of the matter is the Bible's already told you who victory belongs to. It doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Jesus, but if you're in him, then it belongs to you because you're an inheritor of everything that belongs to him. That's the good news of the gospel. So the question is, what is sin? Sin, at the very foundation, is valuing anything more than God himself. Anything that you value more than God himself inevitably, inevitably becomes a sin. Here's how I want to say it. We never merely leave God because we value him so little. We don't become apathetic because we value God so little. We leave God by exchanging him for what we value more. We found something else that's more important to us than the God of the universe. So now we've drifted into spiritual apathy. Romans 1, 22 through 23 says it like this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They thought they were making the right decision, but they weren't. They were making a foolish decision, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. That's what sin is at its base. It's exchanging the creator for something he created. David Pollock next week is going to talk about travel ball. And I'm not, all right? I'm not going to talk about that. But, but a, a sad reality as parents is we have to ask ourselves the question, man, have I exchanged the glory of God for a hope that my child might obtain this status one day and keeping them so busy that they now have no appreciation for the, the things of God at all, the church at all. But man, they are a great shortstop. Man, they're a great pitcher. And you can fill that in with academics. Man, my, my kids are so hungry to be at the top of their class making straight A's that at the end of the day, they push the Bible to the side so they can know more chemistry. And before you know it, everything else has competed for the throne and those things start occupying the throne that rightly belongs to God. Let me say it like this. 
Church, we must pay attention to our affections. We must pay attention to what we love. We must pay attention to what we are prioritizing and putting on the throne of our lives. Don't chase the things of this world. Church, if I can encourage you to do anything this morning, it is to chase after God and chase after him alone. Listen, church, every single one of us are in danger. We're all in danger. You're in danger. I'm in danger. We see sin manifest itself in our lives in a plurality of ways. The sin that I see manifest itself in my life might look different than the sin that's manifesting itself in your life, but at the end of the day, we are alike in the fact that that something is waging war for our hearts. And what we need to understand is that sin is the most powerful and most prevailing and most inescapable problem in all of humanity. It's not going anywhere. It's gaining steam. And it's getting larger and larger by the minute. And the people who are allies to the person of sin, because it is a person, he's a master. The people who are his ally, their army is growing by the masses. And the more that army grows the brighter your light is going to shine if you live it the way that Jesus intends for you to live it. Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans explaining the root of sin. What's the root of sin? Anybody? It's the heart. We can deal with the manifestations of sin all day long, but if we don't deal with where sin comes from, we're going to miss it every time. Sin comes from the heart. Paul deals with that in the first three chapters of Romans, and then he uses the next few chapters to talk about the magnitude of sin's power. He says, not only does it come from the heart, but listen to how powerful it is. He says in chapter 5, it reigns like a king in death. Sin does. He says in chapter 6, it holds dominion like a lord. He says it enslaves like a slave master. He says it's a force that multiplies and produces even more sin in your life. He says it seizes the law and leads to death in chapter 7, verse 11. He says it's a hostile tenant who dwells in us. Chapter 7, verse 17. He says it's a law that takes you captive. Chapter 7, verse 23. What's my point? My point is, church, family, you and I, we must take sin seriously. We must take it seriously. We must do everything it takes in order that you and I steer clear of allowing sin to have any rule or reign in our lives. And the only way that this happens is when we develop an honest assessment of ourselves. And we quit calling our sin by any other name than sin. Secondly, and this is the last point, we develop a steady habit of confessing sin. This is to avoid apathy. We develop a steady habit of confessing sin and then resting in his faithfulness to forgive. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is saying the mark of a genuine Christian is not only the recognition of his sin, so good, good, you, you can see sin in your life, good, but what are you doing with it? The mark of a genuine Christian is that he is corresponding with confession in his life. He sees the sin and then he goes and he confesses it. Now let me say something real quick about this. One of the things I've noticed about my life, and maybe you've noticed about yours, is when I, when I deliberately fall into sin or when I just happen to slip into sin, either way, it's easy for me, it's hard, but it's easier for me 
to go to God and to confess it. Man, Lord, I, I, I reacted like this today. I should not have reacted that way. Will you forgive me? But what's hard is for me to go to the person that I reacted that way to and to say to them, hey, I also need you to forgive me. I, I went to God. I've asked them to forgive me. I realize I've sinned against you, but I also want to ask you to forgive me as well. But do you know that you can't have one without the other? That God calls us not only to seek forgiveness from him for the sins that we commit, but if those sins were against other people, that if we are going to obey him, we must also go to them and ask for forgiveness too. For some of you, that means you're gonna have to pick up the phone today and say, you know what? I've had some conversations about you this week that did not edify you as my brother or sister in Christ. And that was wrong. Because I never called you. I called them. And that's gossip. And I need to call you and seek forgiveness from you. Some of you, you do not assume the best about people in your life. In fact, you assume the worst. They're always out to get you. They're never your friend. They're always your enemy. And everything that they do has an agenda or a motive to take you down. And you need to get that right. You need to figure out where is that coming from and maybe pick up the phone after dealing with it with God. Pick up the phone and call and say, you know what, I haven't assumed the best about you. And that is sinful of me. I want to ask you to forgive me. Maybe the Lord is bringing some things to your life today, but I love how John says it. He gives two things here. He says, if we confess our sin, it's an if-then clause. Then he will be faithful to forgive it. If we'll confess it, then he'll be faithful to forgive it. Before our sin is forgiven, it requires confession out of our mouths, out of our hearts. Confession is more than a whoops, that's my bad. Confession is more than a, hey, I'm so sorry I did that. Confession is going before someone and naming sin as sin and asking for forgiveness as a result of the sin that you've committed. In fact, authentic confession leads to humble contrition. That is humble repentance. We need to understand that confession of sin is application of the gospel. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Forgiveness is not grounded in the action of our confession. It is beaten, in, it, it, but, but it's in the beaten and broken body of Jesus that the blood he shed to pay the price for the sins that we've committed. Like, like forgiveness isn't based on what I do and what I don't do. It's, it's based on who he is and what he's already done in our place. And if, if I see myself growing in, in how much I need forgiveness from God, it becomes exceedingly more, more, more clear how much forgiveness I need to offer to other people. Because confession of sin is application of the gospel. You couldn't obey Jesus. You couldn't obey God. That's the point of the Ten Commandments, not to show you how sinful you are. It's to expose to you the sin that's in your heart, that you couldn't do it. And you start to go through the Ten Commandments, and you go through the law, and you realize, I don't measure up. The good news is you don't have to, because Jesus does, and he, when he dealt with the sin that you've committed on your behalf. Death is the inevitable result of your sin, but you don't have to die because Jesus died for you. That's the gospel. It's in the gospel that we see and understand that God is faithful to his promise and that he receives a confessing sinner. And not only is he faithful to his promise of receiving the confessing sinner, but he's just in his own immutable and truthful character. He deals with it accordingly. It's from his justice as well as his faithfulness that God can, God will, and God does pardon, forgive, and sweetly blot out every single iniquity and every single transgression that any confessing sinner ever confesses. Isn't that good news? 
that if you will take your sin before the Lord, he will do exactly what he says. He will forgive it, and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. So in order to avoid apathy, two things. We must develop an honest assessment of self. Second, we must develop a steady habit of confessing sin and resting in his faithfulness to forgive. Rebecca is going to come out and play, and I want to give you quickly nine signs of genuine repentance. How do I know that I am genuinely repenting this morning? How do I know that I see my sin as sin and I'm dealing with that sin accordingly? Nine quick things. Here they are. Number one, you name your sin as sin. You don't spin your sin as anything else. It's sin, and you call it that. Number two, you confess your sin before you're caught in your sin. It's easy to go and ask for forgiveness once you've been caught. It's hard to ask for forgiveness before you've been caught. Confessing sin means you recognize that it's an offense against God and you go and you get it right, both, again, both with God and the person that you've offended. Number three, your confession is accompanied by transparency. You don't go and confess half of your sin. You go and you confess all of it. All of it. You lay it down. You say, the reason I'm putting it all on the table is because I don't want anything to linger behind. You're going to have to deal with that. Whatever lingers behind, you're going to have to deal with later. Number four, you are eager to make amends both with God and with others. If you are genuinely repentant this morning, you will want to make amends both with God and with the people that you have hurt. Number five, you don't even consider the consequences of your confession. You don't care what it's going to cost. Because at the end of the day, the greatest thing that you know about your sin is that it offends the heart of God, and that's what matters most to you. Number six, you will do whatever it takes to have victory over your sin. If your spouse mentions counseling, if someone mentions rehab, whatever the case may be, you won't view that as a negative thing. You'll view that as a positive thing to help you look more like Jesus and gain victory over the sin that you've been unwilling to shake. Number seven, you will not resent accountability. In fact, you will welcome it into your life. Ma'am, sir, there are sins in your life and in my life that quite frankly, we do not have the strength to overcome. We need help and we need someone to help us. Number eight, you will seek comfort in the grace of God in Jesus. You will recognize that the sin that you're confessing has already been dealt with at the cross of Calvary and Jesus, the one who matters most, will forgive it when you confess it. And then number nine, you will become humble and you'll become teachable. You will realize that, you know what, the people around you, they're not as bad as you all often thought. The wickedness is within you, not outside of you. All of a sudden, when, 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 the, when the, the light is pointed towards you, it looks really dark everywhere else. You don't even notice what other people are doing. I've noticed that. When I'm aware of the sins that I'm committing against God, I become a lot less aware of the sins you're committing against God. Now, I'm aware of them. I don't ignore them. But the focus is on me and what I need to get right. Confession of sin is a mark of God's grace. Confession springs from the work of grace upon your heart. Without confessing of sin, we're still a part of the family of God, but we will not enjoy his benefits. Do you hear that? Church, as a body, we have to answer this question. 
have we as a body drifted into spiritual apathy? Are we as a church in the riptide, the current of spiritual apathy? And if we are, we know where it's leading us. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to get out? Second, you have to answer this as an individual. Is your heart spiritually apathetic? Do you feel like you're in the riptide? You've drifted in it. You've become numb to the things of God. Are you willing to confess and repent and allow him to ignite the fire again within you? You know, Psalm 51 was David's prayer of repentance after he committed a sin, a grievous sin against Bathsheba. You know the story. Don't need to tell it to you. But you know, Psalm 51 was not given to us so that we could pray reactively when we screw up or mess up. Do you know that? Psalm 51 was given to us so that we can pray proactively. And that's how we need to approach it. Listen to what David says. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Listen to what David said in Psalm chapter 32, verse five. I acknowledged my own sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't cover it up, I dealt with it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The summer in July began with Chris Gaynor calling our church to a time of prayer getting right before God and bringing our biggest burdens and laying them down at his feet. And I want to end our summer together by doing the same thing. As individuals and as a church, I want to call you to a time of prayer. Maybe that's right there at your seat. Maybe that's with your family. Maybe that's at this altar. We talked to our students on uh, our student beach, or camp, student beach, I always say student beach, student camp um, at Chaco Springs. And we told them, you know what the altar was for in scripture? It wasn't just a place where you could come and people could stage dive and you catch them. Like that's a concert and that's centered around entertainment. And that's not what this is. Do you know what the altar, this space was for? It was for sacrifice. Well, you don't bring sacrifice because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So what does he say in Romans chapter 12 is the sacrifice? You are, it's a living sacrifice. So you bring yourself and you lay it down. You say, Lord, all that I have and all that I am, I am surrendering it to you. It's yours. It was a place of prayer. It was a place of praise. It was a place really to do business with God. That's what this space is for. If you want to utilize it like that, we invite you to do that today. But here's the challenge. In order for this summer to be the best summer yet, in order for this to be kind of like the grand finale, of the fireworks show. It involves you making a decision to say, God, before you and you only have I sinned. And I'm not gonna leave it there. Once you deal with my heart and I confess it for, before you and I'm forgiven of it by you, I'm gonna go to the people that I've hurt and offended and I'm gonna seek forgiveness from them too. And you know what you're making room for, church? You're making room to reap the benefits of who God is and what he wants to do in your life. There is no better place in all of the world to be than right in the center of God's will.
And that's where I want you to be. That's where I want us to be. If we want to see from August to December the Lord to move mightily in our church and in our lives, it begins with us hitting our knees and asking God to forgive us of the sins that are in our lives. So will you join me in that? I'm gonna ask every one of you to stand right where you are. Rebecca, the band, they're gonna begin playing. And I want you to do business with God. Some of you, you don't know Jesus and you need to come up and you need to surrender your lives to Christ. Some of you, you have avoided baptism for as long as you've known. And now is the time for you to say, you know what, I am tired of being disobedient. I'm gonna get baptized. Some of you, you need to be in a group. Whatever the case may be, I want you to confess your sin and then be willing to do whatever God leads you to do to make sure that you're taking steps in obedience to Christ.